2024, we are gonna have a presidential election, which is probably gonna be one of the most unpredictable election. And depending on who wins the election, there might be big federal policy changes and federal fiscal policy changes. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And we are, of course, proudly sponsored by the Government Finance Officers Association, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and Build America Mutual. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by my co-host, fiscal policy wonk, journalist, researcher, chicken connoisseur, baseball mom, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Thanks, Justin. Uh, I have a chicken update, uh, which is like mixed feelings about about this one. So I mentioned the two that my son bought uh, probably like a month or so ago now. Um, we heard one of them trying to crow <laughs> the other morning. Oh, no. <laughs> it, wow. It happened again. It happened yet, yet again. Another... <laughs> <laughs> it's the risk when you buy straight from the farm. So, <laughs> so now I've got to call my father-in-law, the the you know retired chicken uh, farmer, to ask about to ask advice about uh, having two roosters. So that's uh, that's that's the next step. <laughs> yeah, I've uh, I I have heard that that. That can't be done, at least not without mm-hmm. uh, a lot of drama. Well, we you know, we are recording this uh, early July. Most states just crossed over into their 2024 fiscal year, uh, July 1st fiscal year. And so with that comes, of course, a lot of questions about what is to come in fiscal 2024. And we're very lucky to have uh, with us here today to talk about some of those trends, particularly on the revenue side for states. Lucy Dedan from the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center, a real well-respected name, and has been talking about trends in, in state revenues and state budget forecasts for a long time. And we're both very familiar with her work, so we're thrilled to have her on to tell us about some of her recent work and what's to come in 2024. To set that up, Liz, I think it's important to take the most recent trends and and put them, of course, as we often do in a broader historical context. And it's interesting because it seems like those of us who have been around state and local finance for a while kind of divide the world into uh, before the Great Recession <laughs> and after the Great Recession. Yeah. And there was certainly a lot of uh, a lot of things that happened in the aftermath of the Great Recession that really set the tone for the next ten to fifteen years, including and especially uh, super low interest rates that then kind of fueled this this bull market that continued for a long time, really created pretty stable state tax collections for some time, and then we hit the pandemic and that uh, kind of shuffled the deck. But when you think about uh, you know trends in state revenues, trends in state budgets, state fiscal health, uh, thinking about it over maybe the last 10 to 15 years, what comes to mind for you? Yeah, and I, I think it's, it's important to think about this too, because a lot of what has happened in terms of federal aid um, and state responses in the pandemic has had to do with what happened during and after the Great Recession. And this was when I, I was just coming on as a finance reporter, as a public finance reporter <clears throat> at Governing, is when uh, state and local revenues really started uh, feeling the impacts of the Great Recession. And I wrote so many stories about how states states were getting used to the new like the new era or the new normal. Um, I feel like, I think we say the new normal probably every five years or so. There's a new new normal. Um, but and and but this one in particular, following the Great Recession, I mean, state revenue growth was well, they were still losing revenue, and then growth was so like painfully slow that states had to cut and cut and cut and cut. You, but you also on the other end had some states 
cutting income taxes too, because this was also at the time when there was the like a, a big movement around 2010. The Tea Partiers were 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 coming into power in some places, and there was this huge push to to cut or get rid of the income tax. So you had all these policy pressures on that end too, and slow growth. Um, there was the Kansas experiment where the idea of you know cutting income taxes will promote growth, and and once again that didn't work. And so it was just a really a, a struggle for state, uh, I think, budget forecasters to to be able to work in that era. Um, on the, on the other hand, you had states relying more on higher income earners, which makes state revenue more volatile. So just a lot of changes in response to just trying to navigate, like how do how can we structure our budgets to be more reliable than this, you know, inching along in economic growth period. Um, and the last thing I'll say on it too is is that the lack of federal aid, there, this, there was a stimulus for for a bit, for a year or two, a couple of years, and then that went away and, and it was followed by sequestration. So not only was the spigot turned off, it was it was like taking, the you, people unscrewed the hose from the wall. I mean, there was just nothing. <laughs> so all of that, that, that is why federal aid lasted more than just one year. That is why you have American Rescue Plans still available for spending now. I think congressional lawmakers realized, recognized the impact of the that pol- you know how policy was uh, following the Great Recession and how much it constrained growth in states. Yeah, for sure. And and I think an important piece of that too, a lesson learned around the res- federal response to the Great Recession compared to now too, was recognizing the role of regional governments, right? And the, and the role of overlapping jurisdictions. So much of the of the aid that's gone out the door recently has been really targeted at, you know, whether it's regional transit systems or regional health systems or county level public health systems, which was not necessarily the case in the Great Recession response, right? That was much more locally targeted stimulus infrastructure projects that were kind of jurisdiction specific. And so that was another, it seems like, important lesson learned from from the past and in, in crafting a very different kind of response this time around. It's interesting too that you mentioned that that pursuit of revenue that so many states undertook at that time. And you could make an argument that that really paved the way for the normalizing of a lot of taxation that back then would have seemed unthinkable, like legalizing recreational marijuana in particular. Uh, it, it, some have suggested that that there's a kind of a causal link there between uh, having you know, concerns about what a future recession might look like and having access to additional state revenues, particularly around excise taxes and something like marijuana that many thought would be pretty recession proof. Uh, I think the the pandemic sort of showed that there there's probably some truth to that. And so we really just you know, changed everything, really just set the stage for a, a very different kind of state and local fiscal policy. And that's the fiscal policy that we're living in at the moment. Well, we are pleased to welcome it here to the Public Money Pod, Lucy Dedea, who's the Principal Research Associate at the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center here to tell us today about all things state budgeting and finance and uh, and lots of other good stuff as well. Lucy, thanks for uh, taking some time and uh, joining us here on the Public Money Pod today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And I have to say that I'm a fan of your podcast and I'm a regular listener. Awesome. Always great to hear. <laughs> Spread the news. Lucy, um, you know, Justin and I were just saying we've read, read your work for years. Um, and I've always, so I've relied on your revenue, state revenue uh, reporting heavily throughout the years. Um, you're basically the, the first person that comes out with this stuff. And so can you give us, I know we don't have the final numbers for fiscal year 
2023 for states. Um, but can you tell us kind of where things are at at this point with states as a whole and, and um, how that compares to the previous year? Yeah, sure. And um, I have to say that um, whatever number I present, um, you have to bear in mind that there is huge uh, variation among the states as well as uh, across different revenue sources. But in general, what we have been seeing throughout fiscal year 2023 is a weakness in revenues across almost all states. There are, of course, exceptions, and those exceptions being the states that have high reliance on oil industry because of the uh, higher costs of a higher price of oil. Uh, oil. Um, but in general, if we look at um, nominal numbers, revenues have been declining for six straight months in nominal terms between December and May. And in terms of inflation-adjusted numbers, revenues have been declining for 11 straight months. Now, if we look at the 11 months of the fiscal year 2023, that is from July 2022 through May 2023, uh, nominal revenues have declined 5.3% on average. However, uh, for the median state, revenues increased by 0.6%, so almost flat. And if we look at the inflation-adjusted terms, revenues declined by 11.2% uh, on average, and the median state seen 5.7% decline. And as I said, there is large variation across the different revenue sources. As you know, personal income taxes and sales taxes represent the largest share of the revenues in most states, and personal income taxes declined by 16.5% for that 11-month period, whereas sales tax revenues uh, increased by 6.5%. But that's in nominal terms. In inflation-adjusted terms, even the sales tax has seen decline of 0.2%. And it's important to mention that uh, even the median state has seen decline in inflation-adjusted terms in sales tax revenues. And if we compare to uh, prior years, I mean, it will come to no surprise if I say that um, state revenues have seen strong growth in fiscal years 21 and fiscal year 2022. Um, but that strong growth was not associated with economic boom, right? We had double-digit revenue growth in fiscal year 2022, mostly driven by the federal stimulus money injected into the economy. And now that uh, we are seeing states have already uh, been spending the federal stimulus money and uh, that effect is waning off and we are seeing the back to normal and if not weakening of revenues. So Lucy, I know another key factor in state revenues is uh, withholdings. And it sounds like there's been uh, maybe some, some changing behavior around withholdings that's relevant here. Yes. Yeah, so most of the declines in personal income tax revenues are attributable to uh, declines in capital gains realizations, right, which has been the driving force for income tax revenue declines. But uh, when we look at um, withholding, which is usually more stable uh, source of income tax revenue, 
we have been seeing weakness in withholding as well. Um, yes, withholding is still growing in nominal terms, and on average, uh, withholding has um, increased 1.1% between July 2022 through May 2023 period, but that's in nominal terms. So in inflation-adjusted terms, withholding has been declining. And part of the reason is that the wages are not keeping up with the inflation. Lucy, you mentioned earlier that there's a wide variation in how much revenues have declined between states. Can you point us to a few of those outliers? Um, sure. I don't like to put any states on spotlight, <laughs> but in general, states that have high reliance on high income taxpayers have progressive income tax structures and have high reliance on high income taxpayers, and that will be California, New York, and other states. So they have seen steep declines. But there is also a big but for states like California and a few other states because that decline is still subject to be changed because income tax due dates have been uh, extended to October, from April to October. And uh, over 90% of Californians were eligible to um, file their taxes uh, with October due date. So we really don't know yet how much of uh, the decline is uh, just a matter of revenues being shifted from April to uh, October. However, uh, last February, I actually wrote a blog post and the blog post was called um, Five Reasons Why State Should Proceed with Caution Despite Soaring Revenues. And I gave uh, the five reasons being uh, inflation, the pandemic-related spending behavior by the consumers, uh, the shift from spending uh, on on services to on goods, the stock market that was just not sustainable in uh, 2021, the stock market increased by nearly 33%, which is was the highest in the last six decades and when other reasons were of course um, the initial public offerings we have seen the enormous number of uh, companies going public which also increased the revenues sounds like you have a really good uh, crystal ball there we should consult you more often for advice on emerging trends. I know uh, one of the, it it wasn't that long ago that we were hearing about a a really rosy revenue picture for states. It's it's clear that that's, as you've described, turned turned pretty quickly due to a a bunch of macroeconomic factors and certainly the federal fiscal policy changes or the the running out of the federal aid has, has had a big part of that. Critics, I know, have said that some of this revenue downturn, or at least some of the, the maybe eroding of state budget strength is uh, self-inflicted, right? There was maybe one-time spending on items that maybe uh, wouldn't have happened, but for really strong revenues, there was certainly some tax cuts in, in some states. You know, to what extent are states' own actions contributing to this uh, turn that we've seen as of late? Yes, so in 
fiscal year 2022, tax year 2022, the about a dozen of states have cut taxes on income. And uh, we have seen tax cuts for 2021 as well. And um, those tax cuts were justified based on strong revenue growth and um, a rosy revenue picture. However, uh, when states cut taxes, they really didn't provide an alternative source of revenue for the lost revenues from those tax cuts. And so now we are seeing the impact of the tax income tax cuts on the state revenues. That's definitely the case. But also, I mean, it's not just the state actions, it's also other um, factors that have an impact on state budgets, whether it's uh, the geopolitical crisis, uh, whether it's federal fiscal monetary policies. And so all of those have an impact on state budgets. That's why I always recommend that instead of celebrating the strong growth that was only temporary and going forward with tax cuts, uh, instead of that, states could have done more prudent fiscal planning, could have paid off their pensions, paid their debt, and done um, more like invested in spending areas that was critical. You mentioned debt, um, and, and I know some states, a lot of states did did do that, did put money into uh, one-time funds. I know a lot of states, like for example, did money in reserves and the reserves are at their highest level, I think ever. But that that state debt thing reminds me of um, what were one of the things that we discussed earlier, which is uh, the fact that state debt levels are now lower than than typical. And do you think that that's because of, has something to do with the the excess revenues as of late? It's true that state debt levels are lower. Actually, I looked at the debt levels in 2016, nearly in nearly half of the states, the state debt level was state debt represented 50% or more of the total budgets, which is outrageous whereas in fiscal year 2021 in only 11 states that was the case now for sure some states uh, have been paying off their debt but overall if we look at the debt uh, nominal uh, debt then um, the debt has declined only in 18 states between fiscal year 2016 to 2021 in the rest of the states, uh, the debt uh, has increased. What states have already also done is to use that rainy day funds to issue rebates, right? In the last year, we have seen so many states issuing rebates. I mean, for uh, valid reasons to ease the uh, inflation, the impact of inflation on the consumers, but at the same time, some of the way, uh, states that have issued those rebates cost the states a lot of money and it didn't really benefit that much the average person. I mean, that in some states it wasn't targeted a rebate to low-income taxpayers. It was more like, let's give uh, have a gas tax holiday and uh, average person probably saved at most $20, $30 per month, which is not a whole a lot of money, but that costs the states a lot of money. So 
yes, the states have been paying off their debt, but and putting in uh, in, play, uh, in reserves and make no mistake, states are in a great shape in terms of uh, having a healthy rainy day funds. But is it going to be enough if we face the next fiscal storm? That's the bigger question. Related to debt, uh, you mentioned pensions. I'm wondering, you know, from what you have seen, is there is there any reluctance maybe on the part of state fiscal policymakers thinking about the, the next challenge, uh, the, the next potential recession or downturn or whatever it might be, uh, you know, do, do concerns about lingering pension liabilities play into any of these other decisions, like the decision to issue more debt or the decision to do a tax rebate or any of the kinds of fiscal policy moves that we've been talking about so far? Uh, or is that just a liability like any other that uh, that needs to be paid off and really doesn't matter? States tend to think in a shorter term fiscal reality, you know, um, how to balance the budget for the current year and the next fiscal year. And to be honest, like there are so many concerns that states should be addressing, but are not addressing. Um, Speaking of pension liabilities, we have an aging population, which um, means uh, less labor force, also means less revenues. but also means higher pension and healthcare spending. So how much are states um, thinking forward about this uh, problem? I cannot tell, (laughs) to be honest. I know that some revenues forecasters uh, do factor in aging population, but it's not really part of the... um, revenue forecasts on average. I want to backtrack a little bit. You talked earlier about about inflation and that and and tied into to revenue forecasting because I imagine, I mean, revenue forecasting has been I feel like it has been increasingly difficult I think since the the great recession since over the last decade as state revenues have gotten more volatile in, in a lot of places, but <laughs> throw in what this inflation now um can you talk about that impact on on revenue forecasting? Yeah, I feel the pain of the revenue forecasters. To be perfectly honest, it's been the revenues have become much more volatile, particularly post pandemic, during pandemic and post pandemic. Uh, they were volatile before that as well, but we had pretty steady revenue growth um, from 2012 to 2019. More or less, you know, slow revenue growth, nothing really boring fiscal period. <laughs> but uh, since the pandemic, the revenue forecasts are all over. And I wouldn't point out a single state because all states have been getting it wrong. It wasn't a matter of uh, how good their revenue forecasting model is. It's just because the factors impacting the revenues were like so unpredictable, right? And inflation is playing a big role for sure. And to be honest, inflation was uh, more positive for state revenues because even though it was uh, really bad for the consumers, it's uh, beneficial for the states because they were getting much more sales tax revenues because the 
prices have gone up and the sales tax is a percentage of the price. So suddenly we were seeing this a strong growth in sales tax revenues, which is really not the source of revenue that is volatile. I mean, sales tax revenues tend to be more predictable, uh, whereas income tax revenue is much more volatile. But even in terms of income tax revenues, we were um, stronger in part because of inflation as well, particularly in states that have um, progressive income tax structures and uh, was if the income tax brackets are not adjusted to inflation. So suddenly we were seeing uh, people shifting from one bracket to another bracket. So what we saw is essentially bracket creep and revenues coming in stronger than expected because of inflation. But again, there were other factors as well contributing to the strong income tax revenues, the stock market being one of the reasons. Just to follow up on that a little bit, we've talked about the uh, you know the, the mainstay state revenues, certainly income taxes, uh, general sales taxes. Anything noteworthy you're seeing on other kinds of revenues that maybe don't get quite the same attention uh, from the states? Or are they are they just as unpredictable given what we're seeing with uh, with inflation and what a what a post uh, a post pandemic economy looks like? Or are they a little more reliable, perhaps? And uh, Income tax in particular is getting a lot of attention for being unreliable. I mean, because income tax and sales tax represent nearly two-thirds of the total revenues, I tend to look on those revenue streams as well as corporate income taxes, which has been all over the place again. The other uh, larger, uh, relatively large revenue source is the motor fuel taxes, which has been also volatile because of the um, volatility in oil prices, as well as the impact of the pandemic on um people's behavior of um, driving or using um, transportation, any other modes of transportation. So there are other types of revenues that states have been hoping to get more revenues. For example, legalization of marijuana, states have been expecting to get revenues uh, that were anticipated to be higher than what actual revenues were, particularly uh, looking at New York State, which had enacted uh, marijuana legalization in the past few years. And revenues are not coming as strong as expected because legalization meant that people would just go to the black market and buy marijuana in the black market rather than in the legal market. So other uh Things like hotel uh, or alcohol taxes, there was volatility in those uh, tax revenue sources as well. Um, initially, we have seen strong growth during the first year of pandemic, I guess, because people were consuming more alcohol at home rather than in the restaurants and bars because of the uh, lockdowns. But now it's changing again. The patterns are changing. So I would say, actually, there isn't a single source of revenue that I can point out to be more stable revenue stream. Inflation has, um, I guess, calmed down a bit. <laughs> you know, I'm waving my hands back and forth for, for our listeners. Um, so has that helped in terms of state revenue forecasting now? Um, what I guess, what are you expecting for the next year or maybe the next half year in terms of revenue growth or, or contraction? 
Well, inflation is still much higher than what we used to have pre-pandemic, right? Pre-2021. And um, yes, it's moderated a lot. But I think moving forward, it's a question of what's going to be the new norm of inflation rate. Are we going to go back to having 1-2% per year? Or is the new norm is going to be 4-5% each year? But in general, I expect the revenues to be... Uh, seeing very moderate growth, if not declines moving forward. And uh, I have looked at some of the big states that have already uh, enacted their fiscal year 2024 budgets and uh, provided their revenue forecast for fiscal year 2024. And I can tell you that um, uh, many states are projecting declines in revenues in nominal terms for fiscal year 2024. Other states that are projecting growth, the growth is not really strong. Uh, states that are projecting declines are New York, Florida, Arizona, Illinois. California, surprisingly, is projecting nominal growth in of 0.2%. And probably among the states that I have looked at, Massachusetts is the one that is projected projecting a little bit higher growth at 6.1% for fiscal year 2024. But in general, state revenue forecasts are pretty bleak for 2024. Lucy, we've been talking a lot about fiscal 24 and kind of what's more immediately in front of us. Obviously, a big part of what you do is think about longer term trends as well. What are you thinking about for the next sort of three to five years as the big factors that are going to affect state revenue and state budgets. I actually like how New York State in their budget, (laughs) enacted budgets, they put like 30 different factors that can have an impact on state budgets, you know, and they give lots of different factors that most of them are beyond the control of the state. Things to mention is in 2024, we are going to have a presidential election, which is probably going to be one of the most unpredictable election. And depending on who wins the election, there might be big federal policy changes and federal fiscal policy changes definitely have an impact on state fiscal policies, uh, state budgets. And then uh, other things uh, is that are unpredictable are natural disasters and states should have revenues to weather those natural disasters. We have talked about artificial intelligence and that could also have a big impact on state budgets that's in a longer term but maybe maybe actually we don't know maybe it will be the thing in the near term and you know AI taking over jobs and uh, what would that mean? Of course, AI will not be paying income taxes. (laughs) One other thing that is kind of related, immigration policy is important, of course. And one interesting thing is that Canada is um, making it easy for US H-1B visa holders to obtain citizenship in Canada which means those high-skilled workers 
might end up moving from US to Canada. <laughs> so I think those are uh, really important questions. And if you look at birth rate uh, in most states, it has been declining. So uh, the population um, and is is a big issue in the demographic changes uh, must be a concern for the states. Well, thank you very, very much uh, once again, Lucy Dadian from the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center for taking the time to join us here on the Public Money Pod. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks again to Lucy Dadian. That was such a like a, a really um, detailed conversation, but so easy also at the same time to to follow along with with all of the numbers and trends. One we mentioned in in that conversation about state debt being lower, so I wanted to kind of bring attention to the report that that was the the basis for that comment. Um, S and P Global Ratings earlier this month came out with a, a report on state debt, and it's the headline is that it's it's lower for now, which is a nice little asterisk there. Um, I'm just going to read some of the the top line information. So total state tax supported debt it uh, declined about uh, a modest 0.2%. That's attributed to the the rising borrowing costs from inflation, of course, larger reserves, plus the federal um, uh, COVID-19 stimulus aid being around and and allowing some governments to to leverage that as one-time funding pay-as-you-go financing. Um, So those are kind of the, the, the building blocks there. One thing I noted in the report, it says that states are forecasting slower growth or in some cases declines in revenue. Another reason they might be pulling back on on new projects. It notes that project costs are increasing well well above inflation. It says some issuers are reporting that revised project estimates are upwards by more than 30%. Again, that makes sense as to why state debt might be declining a teensy bit, <laughs> and that's a technical term. Um, the report notes that debt burdens have remained relatively stable for more than a decade. An interesting fact, I guess, tidbit that, that I thought was in there is that so they have a graph with net, net tax-supported debt as a percentage of overall government expenditures. So how much how much is your spending going to debt? Since 2020, that has declined on average by about um, one half of a percentage point. Um, that's a really, that's, uh, looking at this this chart, it goes back to 2010. That is the sharpest decline um, of, of any of those years. So that was interesting. And then the last, the last thing I'll point out is uh, speaking of debt service as a percent of general spending, there's much like Lucy's data, there's, you know, it's kind of all over the place. There's some big outliers. So the top three, the states that spending the most um, on debt service as a percent of their general fund spending, and this is in fiscal 2022, so last year's data, um, according to S&P is Connecticut. Connecticut is spending the most out of its general spending on debt service. And that's at, at about a little over 14% of that spending is going to debt service. Uh, in second place is Hawaii, um, just under 13%. And then it kind of really falls off from there. Third place is New Jersey with a little over 9%. And a lot of the states are kind of um, in the below five, basically, or in the um, you know twos and threes and, and that kind of range. So um, just some Interesting data. Um, and again, S&P notes that this is the case for now. Um, that's probably just credit rating agency caution as well. <laughs> but what, what's your what's your take on on the the numbers here and and what this what these trends might say? 
Yeah, it really reminds you of of two whatever you want to call them pieces of wisdom, two two adages that are out there in the in the muni world. One, of course, is that it's often said that we don't have a a financing problem, we have a funding problem when it comes to infrastructure. And I think this really underscores that point that the, the capital is available, the, the lenders are there. The hard part is if you are a state legislature or a city council or whatever it might be, finding the revenues to, to pay back that borrowed money. And as you said, now in the face of projects being more expensive, interest rates being up, it becomes really hard. I think this, the, the report that you mentioned also sort of underscores a key piece of that, which is that for a lot of states and, and local governments, but particularly the states, there's a sort of a dedicated piece of the budget that can be devoted to debt service. Changing that means doing less of something else, and that's a tough sell politically. And so what, you, what you're effectively stuck with a sort of fixed budget for infrastructure investment and using debt to finance that infrastructure investment. But if that slice of the budget is constrained or even has to shrink, then you're just going to borrow less money and, and do less infrastructure investment. The longer term implications of that are are important and I think often overlooked. Not making those investments now means more money spent later on. But this very much illustrates that political reality and, and policy reality that a lot of uh, states are having to deal with, which is that you just you have a certain amount of money to invest in infrastructure. And if there's headwinds, then there's just less of that kind of investment happening. The second kind of saying that this illustrates, I think that a lot of us hear often in the market is that in many ways, a muni market really is a shrinking market right? for all the reasons that we've mentioned. It's, or at least a, or at least a, a market that has plateaued or, or sort of, uh, or is it, a, is that a steady state? I guess you could say there, there's not large increases in debt issuance happening year over year. That's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, some would say that that might be an explicit goal uh, in a lot of states to, to try to rein in borrowing and rein in certain kinds of spending to try to promote in many places different types of procurement methods, maybe public-private partnerships, or as you mentioned, using pay-as-you-go uh, reserve types of strategies to f- to pay for a lot of infrastructure rather than debt financing it. You know, those are all important questions that states and localities have to answer. But it does sort of illustrate again that the market has kind of stayed capped and whether that continues we'll have to see but there certainly seem to be a lot of forces pushing against the expansion of debt namely and in particular the fact that a lot of local governments are just really reluctant to to borrow more because they're not quite sure where the revenues are going to come from thanks again to our season two sponsors build america mutual muni pro odyssey advisors and the Government Finance Officers Association. Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack, Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on The Public Money Line.